0: Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked.
1: A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue.
0: I'm co-host Michelle Govea.
1: And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, everybody. Um, Welcome to another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea.
1: And I'm co-host Chris Wells.
0: And we are thrilled to be joined today by Alan Ringwald, co-founder and CEO of Relativity Six. Alan, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you guys.
0: You too. We're, we're excited to have you. Um, so you and I go way back. Um, I know way Alan back. really well. But for for those out there that that aren't familiar with with you and Relativity Six, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background and, and how you got here?
2: Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I'm not sure how I got here myself. <laughs> There'll be a good (laughs) recounting of that story. Well,
0: via via invitation for sure, at least here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good, good, good to know. Um, Yeah, so just quickly about myself, um, started my first company in college. Uh, It was kind of one of those uh, moments where I realized uh, just like a small little insight that um, doing laundry sucks. And um, a lot of the my friends didn't know how to do it well. And it's actually just a pain point. I still struggle with it, honestly. Um, and there were a ton of laundromats outside of my college campus. And I was like, why hasn't anyone connected those two things together so that it could be serviced? Um, so built a platform around that, um, scaled it while I was still in college to like, I think it was like 15 schools by by the end of it. Ended up um, continuing on with that company for a couple of years, sold it to, if you would believe it, there were uh, larger players in this space. And I sold sold it to the largest player in the space and then um, thought building startups was easy. Um, And uh, boy, was I wrong, Um, which is foreshadowing into everything else. But um, then I, I went off to Google for um, four, four ish years, um, which was great. Um, really interesting experience, like being there pretty early, like right after the IPO. Um, so I'm dating and aging myself. Um, and it was cool. Like got to do a lot of different things within there, but, um, at the end of it was looking kind of like that entrepreneurial bug was, was at me again. Um, and I got the opportunity to help start, a candy company in Boston. So, um I got pitched this idea that um you know somebody wanted to start a company that made uh candy that tasted like Snickers and Reese's but um came from all kind of naturally sourced ingredients like, you know, good sugars if that's even possible, like, you know, fiber, like, you know, make it like a healthy type thing but make it cool and fun and, you know, compete with Hershey's and Mars and all that. So, I thought that was really interesting, even though I didn't kind of have any experience in CPG or anything. I, I thought it was cool. So I went on and kind of joined the founding team there to try to figure that problem out. Um, so I did that for two years and it was, it was a crazy experience, but you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, we got into 30,000 doors on day one. Um, like, so it was like a very large kind of launch uh, of a, of an unknown brand, which turns out is not a good thing in CPG. Um, so that's a whole nother podcast, but, um, kind of better to start smaller, but everyone loved our value prop, the product was cool. And, um, we learned, I learned a lot there. Um, but so I did that for not too long, two years. Um, and then I had an interesting situation happen where at that candy company, we actually had a lot of like celebrity and like athlete type investors. And, you know, one of them and became pretty friendly with, um, one of the, um, the pro athletes that was kind of involved in the product. And when I'd left the candy company, he'd asked me to help him do some kind of like marketing and branding and, um, agenting type stuff. Um, basically nobody cared about him from like a sponsorship perspective when he'd started. And he was like, Hey, can you help me figure out what I could do? And this was like pre-influencer. So it was like, let's make you a, you know, a channel and a brand and like, let's connect you with the 7 million other Patriot, New England Patriots fans that exist that, you know, like care about you and you could make money from them directly at some point. So that was kind of like the seed of a larger company that I ended up uh, running, where it was like basically doing that for pro athletes kind of across. Uh, the board and internationally and all that. So did that. And then went off to um, um, MIT to uh, first work there, Um, work there in the entrepreneurship kind of department, helping students commercialize ideas and, you know, ended up getting jealous and then deciding I wanted to go to school there myself. So ended up going to the business school and meeting my now co-founder at uh, the company I'm doing now, which is called Relativity Six. So sorry, I know that was longer than I wanted it to be, but hopefully gives I you some- am,
0: I'm on the edge of my seat to figure out how all of that
2: <laughs> yeah. gets
0: to Relativity Six and what Me Relativity
1: too. Six says, yeah. It doesn't yeah, make sense, and I love it. <laughs> right? It makes no sense,
2: exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so what is, what is the yeah.
1: common thread there? Like how do you as a serial entrepreneur figure out what to work on and why and how to make those choices.
2: Yeah. I think it's just like moment in time, like looking at something and seeing like, could you turn this into some sort of a like business? Um, Always that stuff, always like the mechanics of that always fascinated me. And I figured, you know, my view is like, you know, I'm not smart enough to come up with some idea on my own, like, you know, thinking about it, but if I'm in the world and, have context around me you know i can start i can see some things and then love the idea of like executing like you know, you know everyone likes to talk about it but like let's what would it really take to make it real um and i think i have just enough time like recovery time after each one of them to forget <laughs> all the horrible parts and there are many horrible parts um so yeah that's so, great what, what are some of those hallmarks that you
1: look for in terms of an idea that's worth executing on
2: Yeah. I mean, it's classic, but like, like, is there, you know, is there real pain and is there like, is there, are there enough people with that same pain to make it worth the while? Right. If it's not too custom for like one type of, like, is there scale? I've always been fascinated by scale actually, for whatever reason. Um, It's always my dream to like build something that scales. Um, And that's always, I think that's like main the main criteria actually. Um, And then obviously a pain um, is a good one. That's why I think the candy company was interesting. There wasn't like enough pain, actually. It was more like us telling you to be healthier. And it's not really like, there's no pain. I mean, there's obviously health pain, like, of course, but that's a later problem for a lot of people. And they just don't want to think about it. It's the whole, di- you know, don't, don't diagnose it. Let's fix it later, which is obviously bad. But I think played out in the way that company Ended up like it went really big and then it had to scale down a lot because not enough people, I guess, cared, to be honest. Michelle, you're going to have to rein me in at some
1: point, but I'm going to keep pulling this thread because I'm fascinated. When you say you're looking at the potential for scale, does that mean it has to be blue ocean or you're willing willing to tread into some bloody waters to to make that scale happen?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know of a blue ocean for anything that's actually like important or valuable. I've never, I would love to swim in those waters, but, um, uh, I'm blood soaked always have been. Um, so yeah, but you can, but you can be faster to market. Right. Um, and that's kind of what I'm experiencing at relativity six too. I think we hit on an insight, um, that not to transition into that too much, but like, uh, cause I love talking about the past, but, um,
0: Alan's raining you in himself, Chris. is what he's
1: saying. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. All stuff. No, no. Um, go on. No. But um, yeah, like uh, if it's, I think if it's valuable enough, eventually the market or the environment um, kind of gathers for that. Um, but you can be quicker to market. Like, yeah, what we do now, I think we were really fast to market on an obvious problem. And we've had, frankly, like a ton of followers, um, fast followers. And so, if it starts, at, it could start out blue just to finish the analogy. Uh, it can start out blue, but it gets red pretty quickly from my experience. Yeah. And then let me do one more follow up. You talked
1: about the pains that you forget after a long enough cool. Yeah. From this. Give me your top three.
2: Top three. What painful moments or what? Yeah, like, what are the? What are What's that?
0: He, she tries hard to forget those.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I want you
1: to I want you to unpack the trauma for us, Alan. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um,
2: We've
0: got an hour. We've got an hour. Yeah, this year. right.
2: Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's the it's just the you know, the pain, the pang of, I think, uncertainty that you live with, I think, is the hardest. It doesn't go away. Right. Like you're always. um you know, you you don't know, it is a good and bad thing. You don't know the future of what's going to happen. Like, you know, typically when you work, like you work at a big corporate job, you kind of know what's going to be going on in six months for the most part, right? Like you kind of have a sense of that, like the, you've had a routine and you have expectations from the greater company and all that, you know, it, it's something like something like this for a very long time, you have no idea what, what things are going to look like in six months. Um, and, you know, that's, it's painful, but also the reason you do it, I think. Um, but kind of just walking, it doesn't go away, right? You walk around with it on the weekend, you walk around with your friend, when you're with your friends or you're at a movie, like it's not, you you wear it, you know? Um, and it just, you know, it can get to you after a while, to be honest, um, because yeah, there's no like, there's just a lot of uncertainty you're living with. No, so, I'm sorry, are you taking care of yourself? <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, not enough. This is helping actually. Um, therapy is so expensive. This is perfect. Thank you.
0: That, that's, that's how we'll uh, market this episode.
2: <laughs> awesome. Real therapy. Balance therapy hour. It's perfect.
0: Um, so, so I will bring it back a little bit, Alan, can you, can you talk a little bit about what, um, relativity six does? Sure. Yeah. How the idea came about?
2: Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, I guess the the best way I can say it is uh, back when I was in school, um, long time ago. Now, um, it was more just like, okay, uh, AI and you know, ML is very powerful and interesting. Um, lifetime value is something I've always thought about as well in all the companies that I've been with, um, involved with, and and I always thought that would unlock so much if you could actually do that well. Um so broadly speaking it was like a project about could we bring the the most modern like ml techniques together with data whether that's external or internal and start being accurate around ltv and that's got a lot of different expressions one would be around churn one would be around like obviously like projecting out future spend there's other kind of there we kind of came out with like eight different components around ltv Uh, We went with uh, one for way too long (laughs) and the the winner was actually sitting there the whole time. So for the first five years of the company, we went around selling around churn and retention and detecting propensity to churn. Um, And another one of those models was around upsell cross sell. So they kind of took two components and it was an interesting talking point. It's certainly, in my opinion, not a. a scalable business for a lot of different reasons, but we went down that path for a while. Um, and it wasn't until, and so we started the company in late 2016 actually. Um, and it wasn't until 2021, like Q2 of 21, that we took another one of our components and like turned that into a company and scale that from effectively zero to like, many like multiple millions of ARR in a very short amount, like 18 months or so, and about 50 customers within insurance um, by like ha- basically having one core insight and one core thing that we were solving. And that thing was- General, please. Here we go. It's <laughs> answering the question of what is it that a company actually does? Now, that sounds kind of ridiculous, and when I tell my friends that, they're like, what do you mean? That's not a thing. But it turns out it's actually really hard to figure out if a carpenter is a carpenter or if a carpenter is a roofer. They look alike. They have the same kind of names. They do a lot of the same type of work. It's just a roofer is way riskier um, than a carpenter from like a pricing perspective, let's say, in insurance, right? And specifically, as you think about contractors, they're a tough class of uh, a tough segment because of the nature of their jobs. If, you know, they're on a job site and then a customer is like, hey, uh, can you fix my roof? A lot of times out of 10, they're going to say, yeah, sure, I'll figure that out. Right. And now they're roofing. And eventually over time, like they build that arm up and then they start offering roofing. But did they tell their broker that they started with that they're doing that? Or are they updating their website that they did that? Um, A lot of times they're not. So that's a class where insurance gets that wrong a lot. And the cost of misclassifying is immense. Yeah. can
1: Uh, Can you connect the dots there between knowing exactly what you know, you're underwriting some risk, right? It's some company. How's that connect to lifetime value?
2: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, That the, I think the point is that risk can and does change, right? Like, just think about your company, like the companies you, you guys work for. Are they doing the same thing that they did when they started, right? There's, an, there's always an evolution of sorts. And sometimes those changes aren't really a big deal. But sometimes they really are, right? They have like, very big implications on LTV and like broadly speaking, what they should be paying, right? Like insurance is great because they have a lot of history most of the time around like product lines and like what's going on. But the hard part is just understand it. Like, so we know that roofers are dangerous, right? Like the fourth most dangerous job in America. Like every time I walk by, Something and I see someone like on a roof. I'm like scared that I'm gonna have to like catch them or so. Like they they always look wobbly every time. I don't know why, but every time I look at a roofer, it looks like they're like kind of wobbling around. So very dangerous, right? Um, but also very hard to detect that that's what they're doing um, most of the time if they're not. Always, if they're not coming out and saying they're a roofer. Um, so that's really like, like that's really the value prop of the call, co- and you can translate that into all different kinds of segments. Um, what the way that I like to pitch relativity six is, you know, your large B2B database providers, no need to name names. We all, we all buy their data and there's good reason to buy their data, uh, for sure, but they really tell you what a company was and our mission and what we do and what we strive to do for our customers is we try to tell you what a company is right now. Right. So that's the, the difference of the two things. Um, and we feel like there's a real category and home for that, um, which is what we're driving towards. And, and we continue to stay focused on industry. It's, uh, again, it's, it sounds so easy, but it's an incredibly hard problem. Um, insurance specifically misclassifies 50% of, um, the submissions that they get and that they bind actually. Um, so huge implications for carriers. Um, yeah. So, and, and again, like, hard problem. A lot of people now, I think trying to solve it kind of coming in, you know, people have been there before us, but like, I think coming in, in the new wave of like, how do you do it with new methods, which is kind of what we're doing. Um, But why I feel comfortable with all that is I know it's an incredibly hard problem. And everyone else looking at this is uh, they're doing other things, right? They're like kind of wrapping it around other product offerings and know getting specific about um which industries they focus on or the user types they focus on like they're going to do things for under and so for us we're so obsessed with solving this specific problem that we know where the gaps are and we're spending our resources fixing those gaps whereas others are just they're not going to be able to spend the resource or time to solve it holistically like we're striving to do so it's um you know, it takes a lot of discipline because, you know, every day somebody comes out with asking for a new thing um, that hopefully we can build. Um, But just trying to like remember past experiences and stay focused and um, execute, I think, you know, it's cliche, but um, you're always, there's always going to be noise. There's always going to be new competition. There's always going to be something, but if you can just get up every day and like actually Put in the work i think that's you know all you can really sorry i'm sounding like a like a self-help book or like something but um
0: well, we've, we've already established what this hour is for yeah. <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so no
2: paid some royalties to adam green <laughs> Right. Um, uh, yeah one
0: question for you alan so um you're obviously solving based on what you just said the the accuracy metric right so how how correct or how accurate can you be um yeah. when you're when you're pricing these is there also a um reduction in time metric that you guys measure against right so the these underwriters are having to sift through submission you know data having to validate that data in, in a lot of cases probably manual research um yeah. how does how does relativity 6 um improve the, the both of those metrics right the accuracy and and the the time to process
2: yeah no for sure i, I don't know if you've ever ever uh taking a name and address and then try to map it to a six digit NAICS code or like an ISO code. And I mean,
0: uh, all the time in my spare time, that's, that's what it is. my hobby.
2: Michelle's hobby. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I would feel bad for you if that was true, because it's a miserable, miserable task. It, it really is. Um,
0: <laughs> to be clear, I'm not here because I need that kind of help. I'm
2: good. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, so like we, automate away that, right? Like the internet research that you would do. And like the reason you need that versus like going to large B2B database providers because most times when you're looking for that code on those big database providers and it's a smaller business, right? It's not kind of, it's not, it's usually not right. Like we're classified by a lot of these major B2B database providers as a furniture store. Like I swear, like that's actually, yeah. So, it's just bad. It's not useful at all. um, so sure. like that's that's why we feel like so kind of confident in continuing to focus on just this.
1: I guess. yeah so i wanna i wanna zoom out maybe one level. how does this how does your solution fit into the overall process? like where does it start? Where does it end? Um, what's that look like? Yeah
2: um so it can it i think it's very impactful at the way top of the okay. funnel right as quick as high up as you can go the better so like either at the retail broker level or at the carrier submission level like i guess prefill is the term used right mm-hmm. so user fills in some basic information about a company and then some auto suggest uh, about what that company actually does show up and then you go through the flow so that's a very popular way that our product is utilized um so that's one and then just as you like work your way down the flow um before something is bound if you're you know kind of embedded within an underwriter's bench or platform that they're working out of very valuable there as well um post bind audit right so we've bound it but we have a little bit of period of time just to double check then and then um pre-renewal as well like has anything changed before we go out and renew this policy so i'd say those are the four but i think generally speaking what is cool in the future and i think where things should go actually is more of a continuous monitoring versus you know in stages you know certain segments of businesses are always changing and i think it's important that underwriters are alerted to that as much as necessary right over that but um you know, certain moments in time, it could be really useful to know. You know, what your risk profile is as a carrier, really, right? Like, fine, maybe we classify them as a carpenter and they're really a roofer, but what's our exposure for the rest of the year? Like, let's keep tabs on this company and see, like, kind of what's it's going like, on. Like, I think like, that's really- yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say it's like repricing a
1: portfolio no. every day for an asset management company, right?
2: Well said. Yeah, that's exactly right. And like, why can't that be done? in PNC insurance. It can, you know, um, it's just, and should, I think, because businesses do change, you know, like especially small ones, you know, and they go in and out of business all the time. And there's just a lot of advantage for anyone who wants to take that seriously. Yeah. Like you guys are no longer. We we talked
0: a lot on, on the podcast about, um, like when you're, when you're partnering with vendors or when you're trying to automate a process, being Fully kind of tuned into what you're actually trying to solve for. What are the metrics that matter and that are really important? Um, and Chris talks a lot about um, like the baseline of accuracy, right? Like you're never going to get to that that hundred percent accuracy. But um, sure. what's like when when you are partnering or going into insurance carriers or brokers and and you know pitching, is there like a, a surprise or a shocked moment when? when they run a pilot with you and they have no idea how inaccurate maybe some of their book was or like, what what's that process like? Like when you, when you're selling the, this underwriting automation solution to them, like what are, what are they looking for? What are you actually solving for them?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, and this is a, you know, pretty subjective data point in many ways, which is interesting. Like, um, like the three of us could look at a business and like depending on sometimes how we feel kind of grade them differently. I mean, and that's the reality of how it goes, right? they are human underwriters looking at things and human brokers also looking at things. So context really matters, um, as when you're grading. Right. So I think for us, honestly, it's much more about them buying into versus like the hard, you know, like pilot, because it's, there isn't a one-to-one answer a lot of the times and, if you're like comparing us to something that the underwriter did last year, right. They graded it like no offense to underwriters at all. Right. They do a lot of different things, but they get it. They get this data point wrong a lot. Like, you know, as any person would um, when they're going through things. So we try to like, you know, I think with us, at least at this point, uh, we have enough customers that keep using us and renewing us and, and all that to say like, this is impactful. This is effective. You're probably at running around 50% accuracy right now. We're in the like 80s to 90s, uh, depending on input. So, like, that's just, you're going to get significant gains. And at this point, buy into our methodology and what we've kind of proved versus like, let's look at us versus that. It's like the, when it starts getting into that, I understand there's a need and what we're, we're happy to do them. It's just, it always has to come with the caveat of like, look, like that's, that's not really the right way in our opinion to judge this the real way to judge is to put it into production over time and see the gains that you get and, mm-hmm. uh, and measure that way um it's, so it's imperfect but um insurance is a you know i think what one really one advantage is that it is a trust relationship industry um, and it, that this translates to that as well. And it's not a fast or first mover, right? So the fact that I can say, you know, we have Liberty Mutual and blah, 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 like a lot of different other large carriers, customers um, goes an incredibly long way. And then the, the customers vouch for you. And so I think it's, I think that to me is more important. And even in the pilot, like testing stage of like, look, here's how we do it. Here's what we do. Are we perfect? No, uh, absolutely not. This is really hard. But guess what? We're the only team 100% focused on it being right. So we're incentivized to be as good as possible. And you want that too. So we're aligned in terms of how we like want to work together. And that's, it served us well, like the product is great but it's not, I guess, all just about the product. It's the feedback loop, which matters a lot. Um, Better training data matters a lot. Like we're very transparent about our process and the cool thing is we know how to improve and, you know, we do improve tangibly as we go, which has been a fun part of it, like working in this space, I think. Um, All of that. Yeah, I'll shut up. No, that's, no, this is great stuff.
1: It triggers a bunch of thoughts for me. <laughs> one, one is um, you talked about how evaluating what a company is and does is a bit subjective. And then you gave a concrete number for accuracy. So what are the ingredients of that accuracy metric that you're talking about?
2: So what, sorry, just to make sure I had it. Um, So like, how do we actually measure confidence and accuracy of a prediction? Yeah, what's ground truth, for example, that you're comparing? Yeah, Yeah, no, for sure. Um, So for us, uh, you know, our product's constantly evolving, but uh, like a big value prop is we're live, meaning like we're going onto multiple search engines in real time, um, including our own. So we've actually built our own, from scratch um, and and use that as well. Yes, we've indexed uh, the web, um, which is crazy, but uh, I think a huge advantage for us. But like, so um, the value prop is that, and then confidence and accuracy is related to, were we able to detect this entity with a level of confidence, right? Like, could we find this company on the public web somewhere? And that's a huge component. And then the other huge component is, you know, there's about a thousand or so classes of business and we're actually very transparent about the strength of those classes. And, you know, that's related to the training data uh, quality. Um, So if they kind of are, those are above a certain threshold, it'll be above a certain score. So we give a confidence score with every prediction and what's cool and sounds like, oh, that's so obvious. But like what we work really hard on is consistency around the confidence score. Meaning like if it's a 0.7, that means it's 70% accurate. If it's 0.8, it's 80%, right? Stuff like that. So that underwriters and underwriting groups and managers can confidently uh, set a threshold basically and trust that. And then they have their own risk tolerance for accuracy at that point, right? It's just a level that they pull. Um, So hopefully that answers
1: it. Super helpful. If only all meteorologists were as disciplined as you all are. Um, but the, the other
2: thing I wanted Sadly, to say, they're not.
1: I think Michelle and I can both validate for you that um, there is a prime mover problem in insurance buying technology. But then at the same time, no one wants to be the last mover, and so you get a lot of peer behavior. And and so what you're talking about really resonates with me.
2: Um, yeah, it's a tough way to go to market, for sure. Sorry. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. That's uh, okay. I, the,
1: the other thing I want to do is sort of switch directions a little bit. And you talked about underwriting, and how underwriters do their jobs. We've heard a lot that there's a talent gap in underwriting. And I was just curious your thoughts on um, where the opportunities are in the insure tech stack to shore that up and how Relativity 6 really helps uh, in and of itself.
2: Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, from, from my perspective, what I'm hearing on that end and how that impacts us ultimately uh, it, it's what I'm hearing is just really hard to hire, you know, good underwriters. Um, and you need really good underwriters to have a really good business. So a priority that I'm hearing on the underwriting side is, you know, help me help my underwriters have a better experience, right. Have like, let's help them do their jobs more effectively like let's not have them do redundant things let's have them do value added things and so any any area where you can audit, like we were saying kind of like jokingly before like like Michelle right like do you, like researching like give you a name and research it that's non value added work and the thing i didn't say you know it can take 15 20 minutes to find like locate the business assess what they do and then map it to a class code it's, and then you can you can you might have to do that hundreds of times in a day. Um will relativity six and you know others solve that a hundred percent? No, but it could take away a lot of the work, like though that's the way I, I position it also is like, what if I could take away a you know, a large chunk of this from your day? Not all of it, but like the like a lot of it. Is that still valuable to you? And the answer is always yes, because it's non-value added work that they shouldn't like a machine can help. Here, you know um so that's kind of how we're that's how it's impacting us is it's just creating more demand for stuff like ours that can take care of the underwriters that are already there and kind of like supercharge them as much as when you know nice. well, um
0: i'm gonna shift slip, i'll pivot um from from that too um The the topic that is on everybody's minds recently, right, is generative AI, especially the chat GPT. And, you know, we've talked, machine learning and AI solutions have been um, around for for years and insurance carriers and techs have have been leveraging those capabilities. But it seems that now that it can be in each individual's hands, there's this, there's new, um, you know, excitement about it how how do what are you hitting up against when when you're talking to insurance carriers or underwriters about um relativity six vis-a-vis a, a chat gpt like solution and then actually how do you think about um ai becoming more available at the hands of an underwriter um how it would impact that that talent gap that we were just talking about
2: yeah no for sure i think about that one a lot right like when that launched, especially ChatGPT4, like a real moment, that was like a, a moment that um, I think a lot of us in the space didn't see, like a lot of people got caught a little bit flat-footed, um, to be honest about it. Um, very powerful, interesting technology. Like I, I use it in my day-to-day life, actually, um, a lot. Um, and it's really valuable uh, in a lot of different ways, for sure. Um, but it, you know, as it relates to... Kind of what either what we're doing or other ai companies is actually very interesting like the way uh the way that i i guess the is this concept of um uh i'm butchering this phrase i can't but it's like the master of none thing like it's like you know you're a jack of all trades like it's a very general intelligence and that's insanely cool um the fact that it can answer a million different types of questions about types of things but it's not, it's you know it's not going to be your go to for niches or specific things that you might need it's just not ever going to the the generalization of it creates you know there are papers written about it and you can think what you think but there is a deterioration we believe happening with it because of how general it is like there is fluctuation in quality, generally speaking, um, and inconsistencies at scale. I mean, mm. what's happening from a compute perspective right now uh, is absolutely insane. Like the like what has to happen behind the scenes for ChatGPT to run is like like a miracle. Like it's crazy, um, and I think it's very early days in that. So you are seeing some fluctuations in that. But I think is if you're a carrier and you're thinking about it. It's like there's it's so tempting to get into it and it makes sense. But I would just caution that you'd have to have a relationship with Microsoft directly and not at all go with whatever is out there for consumers, because terms and conditions constantly like we're looking at every day, like they're constantly changing. You can't call someone if there is a problem like you can't put it into a (laughs) workflow in any way. Not only from like, uh, so that's on like the technical business side of it. Like there's no enterprise contract to sign unless you're like a very, very large uh, company. Right. And so like, it's very early days. I think it basically opens everyone's minds up as to what is possible, but there's an on the ground reality of when you're working in a regulated industry, there's privacy and ip concerns um like who owns what like what kind of data are you feeding in um i know you can turn it off but the fact that that's even the fact that you can turn it on and off means they're not really like privacy has come second or third or fourth here it's not something that it's not top of mind as they're scaling this would be a concern if i was a bank or insurance company um so there's that and then the technical concept of like unless you're talking to like top brass at Microsoft right now they can shut you off at any moment and so like putting this into a key workflow is pretty reckless uh, we found but all of that said we do like it we use it when we can there's actually really interesting internal uses for it but um yeah so i mean all kinds of things um sorry so so
0: what you're saying is the insurance regulators love it or are going to love it is what you're saying yeah (laughs)
2: It's gonna be—it's crazy, right? It's crazy. Like I know a lot of carriers, you know, tell their, you know, in, you know, their employees not to not to use it, and I think that might even put it into a workflow or to rely on that data for something as important as, as underwriting. And by the way, if you actually read uh, OpenAI's uh, terms and conditions, you can't use any of their information on ChatGPT for credit or lending decisions right yeah. now which is, so like if you're using it, it's just, but that's constantly shifting, right? Like we're so early in it that I I think it's a side, it's going to be a side thing for a long time as, and that's it's good, like, again, like it opens everyone's minds up, but it's not the old reliable that you're looking for when you're putting it into like, you know, into a stack that's like important for making money, in my opinion.
1: Okay, Alan, we're coming up the right. last 10 minutes. Uh, this is where I ask you to pull yeah. out your crystal ball. So, two-part question. One, do large enterprises get comfortable with sending their data over the wire to like an Azure or Google or an AWS for large language models? Or do they get serious yeah. about pulling large language models behind their own firewall and running them themselves?
2: Okay, so I think uh, I think I got that. Um, basically, uh, your crystal ball question Um, will carriers be comfortable doing some of this gen AI type stuff with partners or are they going to want to build their own ecosystems for it? I think it's, uh, yeah, perfect. No, I mean, I think, I think, um, I think it's, so it's going to be a blend, right? It depends on the, on the organization. I mean, today, you know, you, I, you know, you, you could work with, with companies with AWS or Azure kind of where like, you know as part of your environment i think the key thing is comfort around one key thing which is can i delete my data and who controls it and where is it like i want to know where it is like can you tell me where it is and then if i feel like it tomorrow i can press a button and it's deleted and you can show me that it's deleted i think if those things are true i think they'll definitely be open to it. They're always gonna be those carriers that wanna do everything themselves and you know have the resources to do that. Um, it's gonna be really expensive, like crazy expensive. I don't even know if they're even understanding like the level of compute needed, especially as more use cases open up and, and all that. Um, but I think the majority of, of the carrier world will be okay with like uh, AWS or Azure or any one of those large, again, assuming we, they can totally buy into the fact that you are you actually have control. I think that's the big issue right now is like you use ChatGPT right now, you have no idea where that's going and who's using it for training and all that terrifying fun stuff. Um, and like, that's one of our value props, right? Is, um, at, at, you know, we have a private cloud at any moment. You press a button and it's deleted. It's yours, you know, there's no one else owning it but you and all those things. So I think it'll evolve into that though. Okay. And then
1: second part of my crystal ball question is the following. Say say companies do try to build this behind their firewall with their own large language model resources. Are they training like an underwriting GPT? Is it a carrier X GPT general across the org? Which way do you think that goes?
2: Interesting.
0: That's um, a good question.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, right because there's you're sitting on so much proprietary information right um that's really cool like that's um i you know i bet or what i would do is definitely not i mean it depends like like if a carrier has an internal initiative right that's gonna be the other question is are they going to bring in the talent to make that stuff happen back to your talent question like internally or not and that's going to be a major investment otherwise there could be opportunities for companies but it's going to be bespoke i think for the for a lot a lot of it right it's back to this like my fear of scale right like can you scale that if you're building internal models for proprietary data sets that you can't transfer over um wouldn't be something i would want to personally get into but like i'm sure consult like there's a whole world of consultants that would be like ready to do that so um yeah i mean I, I think because the key to this at the end of the day is going to be proprietary quality training data, and there's always going to be better transformers and neural networks and stuff like that. um, Right. Like it's just going to come down to that resource, like that really, really important resource of like this data that no one else has. um, And right. So they they should do it themselves, in my opinion. It's a good question. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks, thanks for that um, prediction, Alan. We'll, we'll have to see what comes true over you know <laughs> the next few years, but
2: yeah. to, it,
0: it is now recorded, right? It is, it is it's here recorded. to stay. Your response, yeah, that's yeah. It.
2: can't go back.
0: Um, as always, ChatGPT is a, a, a solid place to to end. <laughs> <So> <laughs> thanks again for for joining us. Um, this has been another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea.
1: Co-host Chris Wells.
0: And we were joined today by co-founder and CEO of Relativity 6, Alan Ringwald. Thanks again for coming in.
1: Of course. Really good to talk to you, Alan. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.